retreat in the fall. And in one of those times that we were praying, I actually had a vision from the Lord about about a lens. I don't know if you're familiar with how a lens operates. I have the cameraman here who's going to correct me if I say something wrong here. But, you know, if you have a lens and, and it's looking at an object and whether it's taking a picture or it's going to project it or whatever it's going to do, you know, that lens gets that object in focus, but it can, it can blur the image of that object by doing two things. By moving away from it, you can blur the image. You can, you can get it distorted. You're not going to see it correctly. But you can also blur the image by moving closer to it. Now, that's almost counterintuitive because you'd think, well, if you get closer to the thing, then you're going to be able to see it better. And so you press to get closer. But there's a lens, there's a place in which a lens operates. It's, you know, it's the focal length. When it gets just to the right place in that setting, now it becomes clear. And just, you know, I felt like the, the direction the Lord had given me in, in giving me a vision of a lens and how it operates is a word that we needed to hear as a church. Because of, because of the way in which we teach the Bible, because of the way in which we emphasize the application of truth. And today I'm going to really delve into this issue. But I think we're all clear on, you know, if we're trying to walk with God, see God, enjoy God, glorify God, then, then we want to get God in focus. We want to see God correctly. Every one of us can realize, well, you know, if you back away from God... You know, you, you get involved in sin and unbelief and pursuing your own course and doing things your own way. You back away from God without a question. All of us understand God's going to become blurry to us. We're not going to see him well, his greatness, his worthiness. I mean, the more you kind of give yourself to sin, the less you see of the worthiness of God. That's one of the traps of sin. The more you say yes to it, God loses his attractiveness and we're blinded by our own sin and we become prone to being deceived. So all of us can see that backing away from God is a problem. But I don't know if we realize that if you try and press toward God in the wrong way, that's a problem too. Striving for holiness, striving to be like God, if not done correctly, can blur your image of God as well. And we're going to, this is really a, a, a devoted to a, a teaching time this morning very much. I'm just looking to let the scriptures illuminate some truth for us so that we can realize there's a, there's a correct understanding that we have when we step towards God. And, you know, in a church where we emphasize a great deal of, of application and, and putting on truth and being changed and mortifying sin, all those things have in them step toward God, step toward God, step toward God. But if we're not careful and we don't understand other elements of doctrine, we're going to end up stepping toward God and experiencing a, a huge amount of condemnation as we do it. And so I go back to this. I'm going to stay with this theme and I'm going to beat on it every time I get a chance. This year, we will often revisit the dynamics of what it is to be disciples, to be learners. This morning, we are here to learn doctrine, to learn biblical insights into relating to God and about ourselves. This is what the Bible says in Isaiah. It says, Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute, 
and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. Therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Listen, you know, if you're not careful in how you read that verse, if you just come from some staunchly conservative church background, see, see what the Bible says about drinking wine? I told you. Uh, that's not the point of this passage. These are people who are busy. Busy with life. They're enjoying stuff. Man, they've got things going on. And in their busyness and their enjoyment and their pleasure of living life, they have neglected knowing and understanding God. They do not know his deeds or the work of his hands. Therefore, that lack of knowledge is what leads them off into captivity. And you and I can be wandering off into some form of of bondage, some form of being controlled and feeling the weight and the shackles and dragging the ball and the chain around in our Christian life because we lack biblical insight. Now, on the one hand, I'm going to say you're going to gain that biblical insight by striving toward God, by being a student, by learning doctrine, by going after the understanding of who God is. That needs to happen because without that insight, you and I will labor under condemnation because we don't understand the truth about not being condemned. Listen to this uh, opening little quote from CJ's book, Living the Cross-Centered Life. He says, I rarely read the comics in the newspaper, but a few years ago, someone showed me one I had to keep. It's from a strip called Kathy. Kathy appears to be a single woman in her 30s. In this particular cartoon, she's sitting at home alone with her thoughts. Things I should have done at work, she thinks to herself. Things I wish I'd said to Irving. Things I promised myself to never do again, but I did anyway. Ways I made myself miserable that I could have avoided. Her look of depression deepens. Things I could have done for my family, my puppy, my friends, my co-workers, my neighbor, my finances, my home, my closets, my diet, and millions of people in need whom I've never met. <laughs> in the final frame, Kathy summarizes her plight. Even when I'm not going anywhere, I have 300 pounds of luggage with me. <laughs> it's amazing how close to home a comic strip can, can strike. Like Kathy, we can all generate a depressing list of things undone, unsaid, and unaccomplished. Even when we're not going anywhere, we can carry hundreds of pounds of luggage. The Bible calls this luggage condemnation. At one time or another, we all find ourselves carrying some, whether big or small. Now, last week, when we dealt more with the cause of condemnation, we talked um, more emphatically about unbelief and sin, and particularly to those who are condemned because they are, have not believed and trusted Christ. But today, I want to put more emphasis really on believers in the realm of condemnation. Our experience in, in feeling this weight of con being condemned, this carrying around this luggage, this sense of falling short, of not accomplishing things and not taking care of things that we should have. You know what's interesting is I actually believe the ground of condemnation, that, that territory that we can feel condemned in for certain activities that we're not doing right, I think when you become a Christian, I think it becomes larger. Now think with me for a second. If you're an unbeliever, not following Christ, you don't know Him. You know, there's there's just lots of stuff in your life that that you're kind of just 
you're just not all that worried about. That a Christian is expected to be very concerned about. TV viewing. Watching the wrong movies. When you didn't know Christ. Did you care how much TV you watched? There's no sense of, oh my gosh, I've wasted so much time today watching TV. Oh, the kingdom. You're an unbeliever. Do whatever. When you saw that R-rated movie, it had skin in it, it had language in it and stuff, you know. So what? Everybody goes to see that. You know? well, I'm over 17. I can go. But if you're a Christian, you know, that's grounds for, I, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have gone. I should have wasted my time like that. How many unbelievers are running around thinking, I have not read enough of my Bible today? Oh, again, here we are in January, and I'm already way behind on my Bible reading for the year. The unbeliever's not running around doing that. He's not wondering about, oh, they mentioned Alpha again today. Mm, I'm so scared to invite that so-and-so. You know, and I, I know I should be sharing the gospel more, and I'm just not. The guy in the world, he's not worried about that. But you come into the church, and you are. You know, if you're in the world and you have children, you just, you know, you're kind of thrilled that they just stay out of jail, finish school, get a decent job, Ooh, and get out of your house. You know, you're happy with that. But if you're a Christian... And your children grow up and do all those things, but they're not believers. You feel that you have failed at the most important thing that you ever could have done in your life. Marriage. You know, in the world, if you just stay married for more than ten years, I mean, you are the applause of the society these days. When in Christianity, it's not enough that you're just husband and wife. You have to be a husband who leads. You lead as a husband. I lead in my home. I lead well. I communicate Take responsibility. If you're a wife, not just that you're just faithful to this guy and just with him all these years. No, you're, you're to submit. You submit to him and you honor him. You hold him in high esteem. Right? If you're dating on your way to marriage, oh my goodness, how many norms can you violate that the guy in the world doesn't care about? You're doing what? You're guarding her what? You know, <laughs> you know and you failed at that and you feel bad. You feel like you've defrauded her somehow. I just went out on the date the other night. I don't know what you're talking about. See, the guy in the world's got territory of condemnation like this, but when you, when you add knowledge, this is what we saw last week, when you add the law, the law brings the revelation of sin. So when you add righteousness, when you become a Christian, it's like turning the lights on in the room. All of a sudden, there's a lot more stuff that you can fail at all kinds of things now that you didn't really have the opportunity to fail at before. So condemnation, the opportunity... For it went from about this big in your life and you got saved and it became like the state of Virginia or something. Just all of a sudden it's everywhere. I've got lots of opportunities to fail. Listen to this thought from Jerry Bridges. He says, my observation of Christendom is that most of us tend to base our personal relationship with God on our performance instead of on his grace. If we've performed well, whatever well is in our opinion, then we expect God to bless us. If we haven't done so well, our expectations are reduced accordingly. Right? Anybody ever done that? You start feeling like the favor of God on your life is something that you, know, you invest in. You pump it up by certain things that you do. Or it diminishes and God's showing up in your life tomorrow and that circumstance or that situation is, is going to be diminished because you haven't deposited enough nickels of righteousness into the machine. In this sense, we live by works rather than by grace. We are saved by grace, but we are living by the sweat of our own performance. Moreover, we are always challenging ourselves and one another to try harder. 
We seem to believe success in the Christian life, however we define success, is basically up to us. Our discipline and our zeal with some help from God along the way. Right? We are always pressing ourselves, try harder, try harder in your Bible study, try harder in your outreach, try harder in your marriage, try harder in your parenting, try harder. And then we get together as a church in covenant groups and in classes and in whatever it is that we're doing together. And we tell one another, try harder, try harder, go back and do that again, go talk to that person, go work that out, try harder, try harder, press closer. And so you can, you can get under the weight of this. And start feeling like, yeah, I appreciate the cheering squad, but every time you remind me to do that, and I don't do it well, I just feel condemned, again, for falling short. And please note this in your outline. It says, beware. Striving for sanctification can, doesn't have to, it's not even supposed to, but striving for sanctification can result in a greater focus on your actions and attitudes than on the God you are seeking to be like, resulting in feelings of condemnation. And I think most of us can relate to that. And when you start feeling, when you get into this zone of condemnation, and you're pressing and you're focused and you're, you're aware of your contributions, your actions, your attitudes, and Christ is being diminished, you are losing sight of Him, you are, you are updating yourself, Always on how you're doing and how you're not doing. And you begin to feel frustrated. Begin to feel like a failure. You begin to feel discouraged. See, I think at this moment, something's missing in our knowledge and how we're walking things out. And we are right now being led off into the captivity. Because we're more aware of us than we are of Christ. Can, can we remember this? When Jesus Christ calls us to himself, he calls us to a supernatural life. So everything on this ground that we're given, supernatural relationships, supernatural marriages, and supernatural encounters with the unbelievers, we're called, if you will, to a life of walking on water. Well, you remember Peter's experience of walking on water? Jesus calls him. Peter, get out of the boat and come to me. And he answers that call. Listen, every one of us, come out of the world and come to me. Get out of that way of living and come to me. Come on, walk on the water. And Peter gets out of the boat, doesn't he? And he takes his first few steps and he does fine and he walks on water until what happens? He gets his eyes off of Christ and he starts looking around and he starts thinking in his own reasoning power and he realizes, I'm in a storm. Wind is blowing, howling. I hear that noise. I hear that noise. I am walking. I am walking on water. I am walking on water. Now, he loses sight of Christ. And he's doing something that's much bigger than him. And what happens to him in that moment? He sinks. See, the call to be a Christian is a supernatural call. And if you and I begin to put more of our attention on our actions, on our attitudes, on our successes, and we lose sight of Christ, we are going to sink and we are going to fail. And now we've kind of created this spiral. Failure leads to frustration, leads to discouragement, leads to more and more and more of the same. Now, the temptation here is, well, if I'm, if I'm feeling condemned and I'm feeling condemned by trying, that's what's condemning me. It's my trying. 
It's that whole sanctification thing, right? Sanctification involves trying. This is where, you, you know, knowledge of the Bible involves elements of what God does and elements of human responsibility in us as well. So you never can get rid of human responsibility. You can't turn around and say, well, you know what the problem here is? Us trying to be sanctified. That's, that's the problem. So I think what I want to do is, and this is what we do, by the way, when we get frustrated and we're failing at these components that are important in our lives, we want to start avoiding the settings of sanctification. I don't want to get in that setting, because when I get in that setting, I hear, try harder, try harder, try harder, and I'm already failing enough, and I don't need you reminding me that my activity isn't sufficient. I'm already pretty good at that. So I kind of don't want to go to church, because I know what he's going to preach on. I know when I walk out of there, I'm going to feel so condemned. I don't want to go to covenant group because, you know, there's going to be people standing around and they may even ask me, how you doing? How you doing in that area? You know, try harder, try harder. See, I don't want to get around that because I already feel condemned. Listen carefully. Be careful. The remedy to feeling condemned is not found in avoiding the settings of sanctification. It is found in experiencing grace and being mindful of grace while you pursue sanctification. Let me say that again. The remedy to feeling condemned is not found in avoiding the settings of sanctification. It is found in experiencing grace and being mindful of grace while you pursue sanctification. This quote from C.J. again. He says, it's only when we receive his free gift of grace and, and live in the good of total forgiveness that we're able to turn from old sinful ways of living and walk in grace-motivated obedience. See, it's very important that you and I understand something about the ground that we're standing on before God. This place of total forgiveness this place of absolute grace and how that came about because if we miss that and all we try to do is strive and perform and do we will get our attention off of christ we will get it on what we're doing and how we're doing and we will begin the spiral of the weight of failure after failure after discouragement after frustration in all these areas of our life that are important to us and that matter to us so let's talk this morning about the cure for condemnation. Remember, I put again from last week's lesson. If you weren't here, these do kind of relate, so it would be helpful for you maybe to get last week's message. The word to condemn, defined by Mr. Webster, is to pass an adverse judgment on, to disapprove of strongly, to declare to be guilty of wrongdoing, to pass judicial sentence on so when we are feeling condemned that somewhere in one of those is kind of what we're experiencing we're experiencing adverse judgment someone or something has found us lacking we have fallen short of some kind of a standard we're being disapproved of you've not only fallen short but you feel the wrongness you feel that whatever that standard was that we were supposed to meet failing in it now has brought disapproval we feel disapproved of in that we feel like we're being declared guilty of some kind of wrongdoing now in this cure for condemnation let me just tuck this thought in your mind Uh, i don't think i'm going to revisit it or have time to later but i would make a distinction between being condemned and feeling condemned i think that's pretty important 
I think when you go to battle your feelings of condemnation, you do have to have a category in your mind of, am I condemned even though I may feel condemned? Because as we said last week, if you start trafficking in unbelief and enjoying sin at the expense of righteousness, you will feel condemned. It, it comes with the territory. It comes with, you know, setting something on fire creates smoke. Smoke has an odor. If you smell the odor, it's because something's set on fire. But there's a difference between feeling condemned and being condemned. So I think we need to allow for that in our own thinking. But let's go to Romans chapter 8 together. And we're just going to take this one verse apart today and look at it carefully. And this verse, this is one of those... You know, I appreciate that these days when you go to buy Tide laundry detergent, the bottles keep getting smaller and smaller. Have you noticed this? Soon it's going to be like one drop of this stuff will clean a hundred loads of laundry. Well, this verse is kind of like that. This is one verse that just one drop of it, it's loaded with so much information in it. So we're going to actually take the words apart carefully. But let's just read it together. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. It says, There is therefore now... No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's a loaded verse right there, especially if you consider what we looked at last week. Let me me just frame this just looking at the words that are there. I think the key ingredients in this verse are understanding the word therefore, understanding the word now, understanding the concept of no condemnation, and the concept of being in Christ so these would be the ingredients that we want to examine today. Let's, let's look first at now. There is therefore now no condemnation. This would be one of those words that when you're reading the Bible, I would, I would encourage us to, to think carefully about the words that we read. Words have implications, right? When I'm reading this verse, no matter how much theology I have, no matter how much study I've done, when somebody says there is therefore now, my mind immediately says, well, if there's a now, there must be a then. If this is true now, there must be something else where this was not true. This was not the case. It's become the case. It's the case now in these circumstances. But before that, it was not the case. And we learned that last week, right? Can I take you back in your thoughts to John 3, 18? Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. And this is the condemnation or the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Here's this connection between condemnation and unbelief and loving the pleasure of sin. And actually, Paul brings it out again in 2 Thessalonians 2. He says, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. You see, this is, here's the epicenter of condemnation. Condemnation is the experience. Condemnation is the vibration of the earthquake, but the the tectonic plates that are moving underneath the ground are unbelief and the pleasure of sin. When those two things grind together, man, the earth shakes, and that vibration is what we feel. It's condemnation. And so it's a wise thing for us to know. Even if you're a Christian, do not think that you can traffic in the world of unbelief, not believing God. I don't trust you, God. I'm not clinging to your promises. I'm not honoring you as God. I'm not giving thanks to you in all circumstances because you're reigning over my life. You're sovereign and you're God. Don't think you can back away from that and begin to traffic in unbelief or in the pleasure of sin and not feel 
a sense of condemnation. Now listen, Christians battle unbelief all the time, don't you? Don't you battle through trusting God with issues in your life and people in your life and the future of your life? Don't you battle through whether that temptation that's set before you and its pleasures, whether it's the, the cake in the refrigerator or something on TV or whatever, don't you battle through that this thing will reward me. It'll reward me instantly. And you begin to say, I don't know if God will. I don't know if saying no to that is as pleasurable as saying yes to this. Christians traffic in and out of these issues. Now, as we're going to learn today, are we condemned is different than do we feel condemned. See, well, I, I can't let you walk away from this message, although I want to keep the emphasis on one side here. I can't let you walk away with the idea that, well, I understand the doctrine of not being condemned in the Scripture, so therefore I'm going to wander into unbelief and I'm going to wander into the enjoyment and pleasure of sin all I want. Well, if you do, I'm just warning you. You're going to smell something on fire. You're going to smell the aroma of condemnation. And you're going to battle with the feelings of condemnation. Now, we do traffic into unbelief and we do traffic into the pleasures of sin. That's going to happen. But when you do, you need to know the difference between being condemned and feeling condemned. You will feel condemned in that moment. And you will have to battle it with the truth. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Listen, listen to the condition that at one point, this is our condition. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. See, this verse, there is therefore now no condemnation. Now there is. But back then, before this moment, before these things took place so that we could say there is now no condemnation, back then we were condemned. We were in unbelief. We loved the pleasures of sin. We followed the principalities and the powers of this world. Our flesh loved its own desires. And we were condemned. Remember we said, condemning is the judgment. It is you sitting before the judge and him saying, based on the evidence of right and your wrong, you are guilty. The judgment is this sentence. The wrath of God is the carrying out of the sentence. So when the Bible says we were by nature children of wrath, all this is balled together. We were guilty before God. We, we stood condemned. And the punishment for that was going to be the wrath of God spilled on our lives forever. Now, all of us, all of us at one time were condemned. This is the, this is the condition of humanity. And I, I want, I'm going to press this point for a moment because it's not in man's modern philosophy. And you come in from the world and you get saved and you have this... Everything's beautiful in its own way. People are decent people. Everything's pretty good. And you come to things like this and you want to skirt past them and run right by them. Everyone, everyone was condemned. We live in a world that is condemned. We live as people who were condemned apart from Romans 8 verse 1. Everyone is condemned. And you have verses like this in 1 Corinthians and many in the scriptures. Do you not know 
that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Understand, when you and I survey humanity, I hope, I hope you don't have an uninformed biblical view that you look out on humanity that, that somehow in the end it all comes out in the wash. It's going to be fine for everybody. You and I should feel the reality that, that we once were like all of humanity. We were under the condemnation of having fallen short. And in that condemnation, we were simply in the waiting room, waiting to be taken to the wrath of God, which we were beginning to smell and taste just a little bit in this world, but would be poured out for all eternity. When you look up at the world, please do not be at peace with their condition. They are not in a good place. This should inform the way a Christian lives his life upon planet Earth. I'm okay, you're okay, ain't okay. They're not okay, and neither were you and I. We were not okay. We were condemned. We were under the wrath of God. Now, I, I don't think we get this, probably until many years into Christianity. I hope we get it quickly. But, you know, it's almost most of us, and maybe many of you are here today, and I think if I think back to my conversion, I would say this as well. You know, we come, we walk through life, we're not Christians, we are condemned, and the wrath of God is the meeting out of that sentence. We don't know that, but we're walking through life, and, and stuff starts coming off of our life. The wheels start to come off. Stuff doesn't work. Things get old. You know, whatever it is that drove you. You know, you, you got bored with this, so you tried drugs. Next thing you know, you were addicted. Started stealing from you left and right, wrecking all your relationships. Your life wasn't working. It became a, just a big mess of sorrow. Uh, maybe you just got bored with relationships. You tried this thing, you tried that thing, you tried this thing, you tried to be successful. Uh, you tried to buy this latest gadget or toy, you moved from this marriage to that one. And in the end, you felt as empty as when you started the whole thing. You know, somewhere along the way, you clue in that life doesn't work. So you're, you're on the side of the highway, if you will, and your life is broken. And someone comes along, a friend of yours, maybe it's an office worker, relative, something about Christianity is going on in their life, and they invite you to church. They talk to you a little bit, and you hear the gospel. And maybe you respond, or maybe you've gone through Alpha, and you respond to that. And your perspective on Christianity is, my life wasn't working, and, and I was introduced to Christ, and he came into my life. And what a difference he's made. And you know what? That's true. That is a genuine testimony. That's the way all of us should sound. That's the way I think I would have shared my testimony years ago. Um, but it's not all the truth. There was more going on there. So that almost gives us the image that I'm living my life, I'm driving down the highway of life, and all of a sudden my car starts to sputter. I think it's going to go out, but I'm in a desert somewhere. And it's, you know, it's running rough, and, and, it, and i got gas, and I can't understand, and I'm confused, and the thing just dies on me. And I'm in the middle of the desert, and no cars are coming. <coughs> and Jesus comes along. I don't know, he's probably riding a Harley or something. He comes driving up. Hey, what's going on? I don't know. My light's busted. I can't get it started. He opens the hood, he messes with it, he fixes it. He's got some urgency about him. 
Try it now. You turn it on and you start it. Oh, thank you. Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I can get on my way. And we go on about our life again now. And we remember that day and we're so grateful. Jesus showed up in my life and he fixed my life. I'm so grateful that he did. Until one day you're reading the Bible and it's almost like a newspaper comes. And the headlines are remembering the day that the asteroid landed in the desert. This mile-wide asteroid. And you're looking at this picture and you're realizing, and you look at the date and you look at the time and you realize finally, oh my gosh, that's exactly where my car was parked. That thing hit 30 minutes after I was there. See, in that moment, you realize Jesus did a whole lot more than just fix your life. He saved your life. See, there's more that's happened here. We are, we're under a sentence of condemnation. The wrath of God was coming like a meteorite speeding to the earth. It was going to plunge into our lives and destroy us for eternity. And I met Christ. And he didn't just turn a few screws and put a smile on my face and help my marriage and my wife and I get along a little better. Although he did do that. He saved me from the wrath to come. I was then condemned. There is, therefore, now no condemnation. See, now something has changed. Let's look at that next word. There is now no condemnation. I'm in a new place now where there is no condemnation. As contrasted before where I was fully condemned, now I am not condemned at all. There's no condemnation. Go back to Mr. Webster's thoughts here. That means there is, there's no adverse judgment coming to my life. John 5.24 says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. If you're a Christian, there is no judgment awaiting you. You will not face a judge who will give a sentence to you of here is the condemnation being delivered to you and the wrath that comes with it. There is no Judgment for the Christian in that regard. We've passed out of judgment when we became Christians. There's no declaration of guilt or wrongdoing. Do you remember that condemnation means to, you know, to be declared guilty of wrongdoing. So listen to this in Hebrews 10, verse 11 and following. It says, Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Remember in the Old Testament, you just got reminded of your sins year after year. When you went to go bring your offering again, you, it was a reminder of sin. It was also helping you understand God's provision for sin. But, verse 12, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. <clears throat> for by... A single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. I'm going to come back to that in a second. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, 
I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. See, there is no more any guilt or the reminder of wrongdoing. See, that word remember doesn't mean that God forgot. You know, I, I don't like when people do that to, to this verse. You know, God is not in heaven looking at his son trying to figure out why those nail marks are in his wrists. You know, what happened there, Jesus? You know, I just don't remember. Oh, no, no, he remembers. That word there, actually, in the language, the original language, it, it, it means to recall in order to repay. It means to bring up your tab and to say, you owe. So God remembers that these things happen, but he does not recall them in order to place upon us the guilt of them. Right, that's, that's not what he's doing with that. Where there is forgiveness, verse 18, where there is forgiveness of these things, there's no longer any offering for sin. All right, now this goes back to CJ's thought about being completely forgiven. We're not 90% forgiven. <clears throat> Set us on the Old Testament. You know, remember, the Old Testament had a variety of offerings. You know, you would, sometimes it was a grain offering. Sometimes a little bird. Sometimes it was a, a, a goat. A, well, it's not as though we have the freedom now to create lesser offerings. Right? We have these lesser offerings. You know, we've done something wrong. We've failed. We've fallen short in the land of condemnation with all of our responsibilities and things that we should be doing. We've fallen short. So what we're going to do is we're going to make up some form of an offering in order to make up for that. Do you understand where there is forgiveness, there is no longer any offering for sin. Do not attempt to atone for your sin. Do not attempt to make up for your sin. Do not attempt to pay somehow for your failures. Don't beat yourself. Don't create glass to crawl across. Whatever it is that you torment yourself with because you can't stand that you're failing in some area, remedying it by sometime, uh, somehow bringing an offering to God is off limits. Where there is forgiveness, there is no longer a place for offering. Offerings are to be given when there's not forgiveness. Once there is forgiveness, offerings are done. Remember, Jesus sat down. He's done. He ain't getting up again for you. And the only thing that could ever have forgiven any sin and any falling short on my behalf is the perfect blood of the Lamb who takes away our sin. So, so I've got to get out of my mind that I'm thinking if I shed my blood, sweat my sweat, work my work, do my penance, whatever it is that I'm trying to do, that somehow I'm going to ever get forgiveness. That never got forgiveness and it never will get forgiveness. The only thing that can ever produce forgiveness is the perfect blood of the Lamb. And He's done. He will never get up again to shed His blood. That's done. So if that's done, forgiveness is done. Do you understand? You are completely forgiven. Completely. All right, so when we start dealing with one of those quotes in the beginning that, that highlighted the fact that sometimes we've, we feel that we're in disfavor with God. We're out of the favor of God. You know, we start toying with how God likes us and doesn't like us, how he feels about us, whether he's, he's angry at us and whether we're accepted by him. And, and we start playing with that thing. And we start wondering how God's relating to us. Boy, that'll really inspire you to get out of a hole. Start turning God into something that he's not. Well, what are you going to do to get him to become what you hope he's going to be? You're going to offer something? You're going to offer never to do it again? You know, offer to get your act together. From now on, I'm going to do this this way. From now on, I am not screwing up in this area. I'm asking everybody that I don't even know. A million people are going to hold me accountable. I'm never doing this again. <clears throat> well, that's great. I don't mind you doing that. Just do it for the right reason. 
Don't do it as an offering to God so you can get his favor. That never got you God's favor in the first place. It was one thing that got favor from God, and it was the person sitting down next to him who's not getting up again. Listen to the, back up a little bit in verse 14 there, that quote, Hebrews 10, verse 14. It's a very interesting way of saying something. For by a single offering, he has perfected. Now, you may not be much of a grammarian, but that's a past action that is completed. It's done. He has perfected for all time. Now, add this to it. Those who are being sanctified. Wait, wait, wait. How can somebody be perfect and yet still being sanctified? To be sanctified is to be changed. It's to grow in holiness. It's to increase in the reality of the holiness of God taking place in our lives. So how, on the one hand, are we perfected and at the same time growing in holiness? See, this, this is where you need to make sure, why is there striving and pressing toward God? It certainly cannot be so that we might attain something of acceptance with God. It cannot be for that reason. Because according to this passage, we have been made perfect. You, can you get any more perfect than perfect? You can't get If you're perfect, you're perfect. We've been made perfect. Perfected, it means we have, we have been given his righteousness and his right standing with God. God has given to us righteousness. It's and he has given to us right standing with God. So in that sense, we are perfected before God. There is no striving left for you and I to achieve a place of perfection before God. But we're still being sanctified. It must be that we're being sanctified for a different reason then. And we are. And I'm not going to get into that at all today, but just, can you just leave it in that category? Sanctification is not about us achieving perfection and acceptance before God. That's already been done. Spiritual disciplines, Bible reading, obeying God, serving others, mortifying sin... Any of those activities, upholding your responsibilities, none of those things are about gaining us a place of acceptance before God at all. That's already done, completed, past tense, over with. We have been perfected. But yet the Bible turns around and says, try, do, put on, stop this. It must be for different reasons then. It's not to gain the favor of God. That's already been given to me. There's no condemnation, therefore is, there is no disapproval. Well, you know how important this is? You know how many of us in this room are being tortured by our pursuit of approval? If I could go cycle, cycle babble on you for a moment. If we could really be honest, right, let's install the TV monitors over all of our heads and just let our true intentions of our heart be known and just, you know, kind of, have our moment of nakedness before people. How much of our motivation, how much of our thought processes throughout the day that we torture ourselves with of where we're going to be and who we're going to be with and how we're relating, how we're doing, how we're not doing, how we compare ourselves to this person. She's bigger than me and she's not that. Much. How much of that stuff is about being approved of? I just want to be approved of. You know, there's something in me. It just wants, it wants to hear something tell me I'm okay. You're all right. I approve of you. Now, I'm not sure that that's, that's just not something we are desperately in need to hear God say to us. And it's in us. And we keep asking everybody else, every faulty, sinful human being, listen, everybody around you, they're too busy to be worried about you. If we first can figure that out. Sin has made me busy with me. I'm not busy with you. I'm busy with me. 
I'm too busy trying to get approved of to, to remember that you might need me to tell you you're okay. You know, I don't have time to think about your problem. I'm thinking about my problem. But, you know, the great thing, the thing that's so freeing is to not yoke my approval to other people. Don't do that. Don't yoke it to your wife. Don't yoke it to your children. Don't yoke it to your best friend. Don't yoke it to your boss. You know, if you do yoke it to people, you're going to be bitter and mad at everybody. You know what I'm saying? Because you can't get them to tell you you're okay. You can't get them to applaud loud enough. They don't do it frequently enough. They don't do it the way that you wanted. Oh, they appreciated that about you, but not this. And everybody knows that this is really what matters to me. Goodness, you're a hard person to be around. (laughs) But the bottom line is, why am I kind of like that? Because I need to hear God tell me, Keith, you're accepted by me. You know, the one who's perfect, the one who does give his attention to you in a perfect way, you are accepted by me. Look in Ephesians 4, verse 1. Chapter 1, verse 4. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. How many of you know some people are trying to become holy and without blame? They're trying to become that rather than receiving it. And Hebrews tell me this, I have been, he has perfected for all time. He has done that. Yeah, I, I'm not going to be able to do that from me. I'm going to have to get that from him as a gift. He should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. God was pleased to do this. To the praise of the glory of his grace when, listen, when he hath made us accepted in the beloved. When he made us accepted. How did we become accepted? Was it after we finally read the Bible in a year? Was it after we finally begin to treat our wife correctly, raise our children right, and do all the things that we have set as goals and ambitions for us, then, then we made ourselves acceptable for him? No, he has made us accepted in the beloved. Any form of acceptance is going to have to come from something God does for us and that he is inclined to do, not something we can ever achieve to do. Otherwise, we're going to run around being condemned over and over and over again. You know, when you look through these descriptions, what immediately came to mind is I looked at no adverse judgment, no declaration of guilt and wrongdoing, no disapproval. I immediately, in my mind, I went to the prodigal son. Isn't that exactly what the father did when that son came up the road? You remember, he's not prepared to meet his dad like this. His dad comes in, there's no adverse judgment. He runs Open arm. This guy has been living in sin and squalor, wasting his life, treated his dad, rejected his father, and basically said, I'd rather have your money than you. You're as good as dead to me, dad. Give me my inheritance as though you were dead, then I'd get it. Give it to me now. What an insult. What a wasted life. And here comes his father running down the driveway to his son. No adverse judgment. No declaration of guilt and wrongdoing. He doesn't come up and fold his arms and look at him. That's far enough. Tell me what you've been doing. I think I know what you've been doing. Don't think you're coming back here like that. After all that I've heard, I can't believe, son, you have so shamed me. He doesn't even mention any of his guilt. He doesn't mention anything he's done wrong. Do you remember the son's got a speech ready? I'm ready. I'm ready to tell my dad in light of all that I've done wrong. If you just take me back as a servant, I understand I'm not worthy to be called your son anymore. I just want to come live on the farm again. 
All right, I'll, I'll, I'll just I'll clean up around here. I'll just feed the pigs and take care of stuff, and, and I'll, I'll eat like a servant, live like a servant. The father doesn't even let him. He starts that speech, the father cuts him off and won't let him do it. No reminder of guilt. No disapproval. See, this, this, is what, this is what grace looks like when it runs and wraps its arms around us and makes us to be no condemnation. Now, next week I want to go a little bit further into that, but there is therefore now no condemnation. Well, why is that the case? Well, that would have to do with that word therefore. There is therefore now. Something's happened. Something took place in this conversation in the, in the letter to the Romans that clues us into why is all this true about us right now? How many of us know that there are people who promote and make use of false remedies for guilt and condemnation? They're all over the place out there. You start failing people. You start feeling guilty about it. They'll turn around and tell you, listen, um, you don't deserve to be underneath that. You need, you need to take care of yourself. You put yourself first. You need to learn to love you before you can worry about other people. You know, they'll thrust you right in the middle of things as though, you know, don't let that get on you. That's all kinds of ideas out there about how to deal with guilt. Now, my question to you is, how are you dealing with it? How are you dealing with falling short? How are you dealing with condemnation? How are you dealing with the feelings of guilt? Are you using these ideas that we're about to see here in Romans chapter, all the first eight chapters of Romans? Because here is the cure for guilt. We end up in Romans 8 verse 1 where there is therefore now no condemnation, none. How did we get there? You remember in Romans 1, if we track through the book, Romans 1 begins with everybody's condemned. The wrath of God is coming, and it's coming because of these things that all men have done, and everyone is without excuse before God. And because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. He moves into chapter 2, and he says, oh, and by the way, it doesn't matter whether you're a Jew and you've got the law spelled out for you, or you're a Gentile, and in your own heart you've been condemning yourself. You both know you've been doing the wrong thing, so everybody stands condemned. Move over into chapter 3 and says, you know, not only do you Jew, Gentile, it doesn't matter, Jew, everybody all have sinned, all fall short, none understands, nobody seeks after God. He wants to make sure you understand everybody is condemned. So we're in this horrible condition in Romans chapter 3 of everybody being condemned. But when we get to Romans chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation. What happened? What happened from chapters 1, 2, and 3 and in chapter 8 that now there's no condemnation now? Well, these reasons need to be our reasons. We can't just be trafficking in the psychobabble of this world. And I, I am, I'm embarrassed by the condition of the church sometimes. I am. I'm embarrassed that God gives such rich truths like this and we want to go listen to Oprah tell us how to feel better about ourselves. I want to throw up. You understand? I want to throw up. It's terrible. We have these rich, rich truths. You have a Bible verse that's screaming out at you. There's therefore, therefore, there's therefore now no condemnation. Well, why is that? I don't know why. Really? How are you dealing with your failure? I don't know. Get angry, bite everybody's head off, stay frustrated, be discouraged, stay in bed. You want an altar call right now? (laughs) Isn't that true? 
rather than, see, my people get let off into captivity because they lack knowledge. Oh, and go have a glass of wine, go run off to this party, get busy, do this, do that. But they don't know me and my works and my deeds. And therefore, they're let off into captivity. How do we get here? How do we get to Romans 8? Let me jump right in the middle of this thing. Look in Romans 5, verse 12. It says, therefore, another one of those therefores, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, right? This is dealing with Adam. Many died through one trespass of Adam, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Christ Jesus, abounded for many. And the gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. Listen carefully. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Here's the source of condemnation. Here's why you and I live feeling condemned. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. If you want to find the cure for condemnation, there it is. The opposite of condemnation is justification. The first mailman in our lives was a man named Adam. He delivered condemnation to us all. But then the second Adam came. I'm summarizing Romans 4 and 5 here. The second Adam came. And when he came... He brought righteousness. The first guy brought condemnation. The second guy brought righteousness. And when you're righteous, you are justified. See, here's the remedy. Here's the cure for condemnation. Verse 17. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive. Right? This is not for everyone. This is for those who have received and have believed. Those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so the one man's obedience... By the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now, do you remember when we talked last week, the chemical equation for condemnation? Condemnation equals God's righteousness plus our unrighteousness. Anytime those two things are drawn in contrast to each other, the earth will begin to shake. And you will feel a sense of falling short. The disapproval of the holiness and righteousness of God over and against our sin. But what happens, see, we said last week, what if you could change one of these variables? What if you could get rid of condemnation by getting rid of man's sinfulness and giving him righteousness instead? Now the righteousness of God gets next to the righteousness of God. Is there, is there any problem here? No. These two connect just fine. 
See, the remedy to our condemnation was for Christ to give us his righteousness so that before God, we would be righteous. We would be perfect just as he is perfect. We would have his characteristics before God. We would be as approved of as Christ himself is approved of before God. Right? Which leads us to that last little phrase. There's therefore now no condemnation, not for everybody on the planet, not I'm okay, you're okay, everybody in some way won't be condemned. That's universalism. It's not what the Bible teaches. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So this is how you and I escape condemnation. Condemnation is a geographical issue, if you will. If you're standing in this place, the asteroid will come and destroy you. If you are standing over here, you will be safe. If you are in the race of Adam, having been born into this world, and you don't come out of that race, you are condemned. You are condemned. But if you'll come out of Adam and come into Christ, it's as though you are hidden in Christ. You are in him. And so when Christ stands before God, Christ is approved of completely. There's no sense of God disapproving of him. There's no God, shame on you. No, there's a God who runs to embrace his own son. What just so happens, you and I happen to be in him. So the same embrace that Christ receives is the one that we receive. The one that he receives because of his righteousness. Because he is worthy. Because he has done that which has satisfied God. He receives the love and the approbation and the affection and the grace of God. Well, you and I are in Christ. So guess what? We get to receive exactly the same thing. From God. Now question, here's the danger for us. How do we get in Christ? How do we get there? How do you get out of Adam and get in Christ? Well, there's two options. There's actually three, but let's just look at the first two. One, either by something that God did or by something we did. Either God's got to do something to get us in Christ or we have to do something to get us in Christ. And when you go back into Romans again, Romans chapter 3, verse 19... Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Whether it's Bible study, devotion time, sharing the gospel... Any work that man can contribute is incapable of justifying him. Verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See, that falling short brings the adverse judgment, brings condemnation and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Skip to verse 26. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of a law? By law of works? No. But by the law of faith. 
For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So how does one get in Christ? Is it by something, some work, some contribution on our part, some good thing we do, some correcting of course, some activity on our part that we can find in us that we did? No, that gets excluded. God intentionally created a system of saving us that could not let us ever boast. The moment, my actions, my consistency begins to recommend me to God, I have transferred my trust from the grace of God into my own activity. And now I'm back on the grounds of condemnation. My contributions is what got me condemned in the first place. It's his righteousness, his righteousness, given to me as a gift by grace. That gets me before God not feeling condemned any longer. How did, I, how did that happen? He did that. And it'd be too much for me to teach on to try and bring that point in as well. But we understand in this passage right here, it was the gift of God. It was received by faith. Now, now here's where most religious folks go. Into a little bit of a third option. Third option is we get in Christ by a lot of what God did and a little of what we do. A lot of what God did. I mean, God, you know, listen, I've talked to, you know, people who have religious backgrounds that come from where I've come from. And why did Jesus die on the cross? What's the, the grace of God? Well, so that you'd have the opportunity to be saved. Oh, wow. Really? So really, ultimately, it's back on me. Right? I mean, Jesus brings you 99 steps out of 100, but it's up to you to take that next, that last step. Well, 99 plus zero means not saved. One step means I get to boast. I took the one step. You're the idiot who didn't even take the one, did you? You didn't take the one. I took the one. I'm going to bump into you in heaven one day and I'm going to say, yeah, I know why I'm here. Yeah, I took the one. I remember the day. I remember it well. Looked at my situation. Looked at Christ. Yeah, I decided. I chose. I'm here. It's a good thing I did that day, wasn't it? See, you understand the Bible all over the place says there will be no boasting in heaven except in Christ. So you and I don't get into Christ by Jesus doing so much of it and we just do a little bit. Yeah, well, we've got to do, we do something. got to do our part. Well, no, not if we still want grace to be grace, right? Romans eleven six. But if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. See, if grace isn't a hundred steps to God, if it's 99, it's no longer grace. Grace is a hundred steps to God, all provided by God, that we may boast in him who saved us, and we're just blown away that he did. Not boasting in any contribution that we made. Now, I understand for the Christian, where this becomes a problem for the Christian, Matt, you can go ahead and come up. Where this becomes a problem for the Christian is what the Galatians began to experience where Paul jumped down their throats with both feet with razor blades attached to his body and diced them and sliced them up. You never heard a man more upset. Oh, you foolish, you idiot Galatians. Who has bewitched you? You began by faith, but now you're going to try and be perfected by the flesh? You understand, when he says you began by faith, he's going back to Romans here. Are you? What did you do? Well... By faith, I just received what God said. 
I just believed by faith. Okay, God, you say that's it. All right, that's it then. And I was in Christ. I didn't step into Christ. I didn't make myself go into Christ. I didn't crawl across glass to get in Christ. So you get into Christ that way and you become a Christian and all of a sudden you realize, ooh, ooh, I have responsibilities as a father and as a husband and I've got to do outreach here and operation replan. I've got to go to covenant group. And the ground begins to get bigger and bigger and bigger all around us. And we start feeling like, okay, I'm not doing that well and I'm not failing at that and I'm not doing that real good either. Uh, and then we start feeling condemned and somehow... Somehow we have pushed the emphasis now away from God and away from the grace of God, and we're all about us. Oh, we're all about applying the truth. Don't we want to do that? Yes, we do. For the right reasons. Not because we're going to gain favor with God. Grace is about having favor from God. We already have favor from God. Do you actually think anything you do, think of it this way, is there anything you could do that could get Christ to have more favor from God? You ever thought of it that way? You know, if I would just do this, and I'd be more successful at this, and I'd get up earlier, and I'd take care of my kids, and I would do this with the neighbor next door, and I, if I would do this, God would accept Christ more. I, I need to get about doing this. Does that make any sense at all? God cannot accept his son anymore, and therefore he cannot accept you anymore. Because you are in his son. Listen to these little lines of thought here, and we're going to close. The cure for condemnation is justification. Romans 5.16 For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. And justification in the beginning of that chapter is we have been justified by faith. We have peace with God. Justification has given you peace with God. You have peace with God. You are on good ground with God. You are completely accepted. He has made you perfect so that there would no longer be this unrighteousness getting next to righteousness thing happening and you and I feeling condemned. No, no, now there's righteousness next to righteousness. It's the righteousness of Christ next to the righteousness of the Godhead. There is no disparity anymore. God is okay with us. We have peace with Him. We are accepted in the Beloved. The basis for our justification is mercy and grace. That's the basis. It's never based in us. It was always based in God chose to do what God chose to do for reasons that would enlarge him and let him be seen more clearly. God chose, not for reasons in me. Lastly, the way that grace is received is by faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, lest anyone should boast. I specifically believe that verse is highlighting that not even your faith is something you can boast in. You cannot turn around and say, yeah, well, God gave the grace, but I brought the faith, baby. I'm here because of my faith. You can't even boast in that. And some mystery in God, even your believing, is God. It's very humbling, isn't it? You want to know why sometimes we dance and sing and shout about songs that we're singing about salvation? This is why. Because, you know, I understand that. I was the guy on the side of the road. And you didn't just come and fix my life. I had no idea. 30 minutes from now, I was going to be destroyed. And I didn't do anything to get you to stop and come find me. And you came and saved me. 
And I thought she'd just kind of put a few of my bobos together, but I realized, oh my goodness, I realized it was much more than that. And I stand today not condemned. I don't have to struggle and strive. I don't have to yoke my approval to anybody or any accomplishment or anything that I'm doing. I am approved of before God. I hope you like me, but I'm okay if you don't. <laughs> the God of the universe, he's fully accepting me. I'm, I'm going to be okay. This makes a huge difference. The last little thought there says, Therefore, any time I attempt to deal with feelings of condemnation, I must do so by the use of faith, not the use of personal contribution, striving, or merit. This was a trap the Galatians fell into. Anytime I start feeling condemned, then you need to, you need to find faith and, and hold still, turn your attention back to God, and let faith drink in the grace of God again. Don't try and fix your condemnation by doing this or stopping that or pledging to do this. And, hey, is it wrong to do? No. Wrong to have accountability and to strive and go after things? No, not wrong to do those things. Just don't do them for the wrong reasons. You will turn Christianity into a miserable experience. You will be striving after something that you'll never feel like you've got. Rather than standing first and receiving and knowing, I do have this. I do have acceptance in God. I am completely forgiven. Insightful thoughts from CJ. We'll close. A legalist is anyone who behaves as if they can earn God's forgiveness through personal performance. Christians can still do that, by the way. Various spiritual activities, such as Bible reading, prayer, or sharing the gospel, that are good and vital in themselves when pursued for the right reasons. But often, without realizing it, we allow a dangerous shift to take place in our mind and heart. We change what God intends as a means of experiencing grace into a means of earning grace. Let's stand up together. Lord, I trust and pray that you have met us today and given us ears to hear something happened between Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 8. And God, I don't find us in there. I find our contribution to have been the sinful part. But you did something. You did something to take us out of the condemnation of being in Adam and to put us in your son. Where your grace would flow freely and your favor would be upon our lives. And it would be consistent. It would not be increased in its volume by our activity would not be decreased and diminished by our slack or failure. God, this morning, amongst your people, Lord, there are too many here this morning. There are too many moments where each of us traffic into a land of being hauled off into captivity by our failures, by our not measuring up, by our not being good enough Christians or husbands or neighbors or whatever it is that we can ascribe that we have to do better in. God, we live under the weight. We're falling short and we feel the adverse judgment of that. But yet, Lord, you would have us to live on ground where we are most aware there is, therefore, now no 
condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Lord, would you take this truth as we sing, Lord. Would you take this truth and would you again blow the dust off our hearts where these truths once were readable and we have misplaced them, we have wandered from them. God etched them deeply again into our hearts and we might be reminded again and again and again and again of what it means to be justified and completely accepted before you so that our condemnation would be cured.